Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Warning, I'm going to talk uh, in a Boston accent sometimes during this. <laughs> not intentionally. It's just going to fucking happen. <laughs> it's not something I can. Uh, so this is this is nuts, dude. Isn't it? Yes. It's like the most exciting week of my life. This is just incredible. Today's guest is Gary Goldman. And um, my son and Gary's dear friend, Sam Koppelman, is here as well. Hey, Sammy. Hello. Exciting week. Hi, Shmuel. And um, gosh, Gary, there's so much. So Gary's age. What a way to start the new year. Gary's. Oh, the Jewish new year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, here's what I think, Gary. Let's not take your entire career down right at the beginning (laughs) of its best week ever. Let's try to just keep this train on the tracks for just a little while. All right. So, listen, I think there's some context people need to have. One, this is your third appearance on The Moment. No. Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. Because you came in to do an interview once and then the second time to... To do a five-minuter. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This is yes. Your third okay, this is my third appearance. Is that the record? On the moment. No, Seth no. Godin's been on oh, 102 yeah, times, on I think. Times. Yeah, um, I'm going to catch up to Godin. Uh, fat chance. But here's the thing. Yeah. First fat of all, chance. I want to say the following. I love you, and it's so fun to have somebody I love on oh, the show, yes. and then to see them here Um on the verge, first of all, what's great is you've already recorded the special, you've shot it, we've all seen it. It's spectacular. So there's no nerves related to that. The special's called The Great Depression, and it is on HBO. It's an HBO hour, and it's on? Saturday night, October 5th at 10 p.m. till 11.15. It's it's 75 minutes. It's an HBO hour, but the way Gary Goleman does things, he's adding 15 <laughs> extra minutes of, of value. But listen, the the special is so personal to all of us. Oh my In my gosh. family. Yes. Yes. Um Sam, what does depression stand for? Depression. Yes. Good answer. Yes. And um listen, Gary, you know, you're uh you're a part of our family. Now that's not I, I'm thinking of how many episodes of this podcast I've done, that's not something I've really said maybe ever, once, twice maybe. Probably about mom. Sure. Good, Sam. This is why it's good to hear you. When mom was on, I definitely, <laughs> yes. I don't even think I had to say she was part of the family. That's, she just is. And yes. certainly Uncle Alan is part of the family. Sure. Yes. Uh, Helen Havy. But yes. uh, Gary spent, before Sam went off to college and um, my TV show started, for what, two years, basically, every Sunday night you came over for dinner? Yes. Every afternoon we spent together. It was called Sundays with the Gull. Yeah. Sundays with the Gull, which was you at my house with Amy and our kids. Yes. And you really did become part of our family. We all love you. And um, and then all watched you sink into this depression. <laughs> and each, you know, certainly Sammy and Amy got deeply involved in trying to help. Yeah. Uh, and when we came to the recording of the special, you mentioned Amy's involvement Yes, in, in trying to help. So for us, seeing you come out of it and become healthy again was the most important thing. But then the fact that, the fact that your, not just your talent, but your talent and work and focus and commitment and will are being honored in this way now with the kind of people involved under these auspices is 
incredibly emotional to me, and I can't even imagine how emotional it is to you. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Yes, I when I first watched the watched it down. That's what people in the business say. Watched it down. People in the business are generally douchebags. Right. You need to know that. Oh, okay. Well, that's how they described it. Let's watch it down. And so I watched it and got to the end. And and have you seen it yet, Brian? Okay, the documentary uh, portion. Okay, there's a part where I I came in early this morning and watched. Wow. So yes, that's tremendous. You and your mom. The whole, the whole thing, yes. the cosmic bottom. Yes. No, you don't have thing. to prove it. I believe you. Yeah. Yes. So I, the cosmic bottom, Sam might have been there for the cosmic bottom at the Harvard Square Comedy Studio. Yeah. No, I'm excited to yeah. ask about that stuff. Yes. So th- there's a part where I'm shooting free throws at the very end, which is a, which is a great way to finish a workout, shooting free throws. And, 94%. <laughs> and I, I, I wept. Because it, it was sort of the, the the first time I had seen what everything that I went through came out to produce. And it was it was an emotional moment. And then I was I was talking with our, our friend Adrian last night on the phone and I started crying because I was I was thinking about myself during that time in, in terms of being like another person and and I I still feel really bad for that guy. Oof. I still feel for him because he... <laughs> Me too. I remember yeah. standing on a corner looking at you on the street corner and giving you a hug and then you kind of turning back with a dog and uh, two of them maybe and yes. looking back at me. Yes. And I knew you were just going to go slumping back to your apartment. Right, and yes. I was like, what can I do? I, can you hug him any harder? Is, right, and, and yeah. Felt like no, yeah. No, I mean, Sammy, you... you you were around in Boston for a period of, of when Gary moved out of New York and back home. And even though you were in college, I mean, I know you took it upon yourself a bit to hang. How, how did you process what was going on with him? And as you would go watch him perform? You know, we hung, we hung a bunch. He, he audited Fiery Cushman's social psych class, yes. unbeknownst <laughs> to Mr. <laughs> Professor Cushman. No. Um, yes. It was a great class. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, what, what I'm curious about is in those moments, you were getting up and doing some comedy, but for a while, I mean, you were also a counselor at a camp for little kids. I'm like, When you were in that moment, it's it's the, the cliche version of the question is like, were you even thinking about comedy? Of course you were thinking about comedy. Sure. But the, the real version of the question is... What what was animating you during those days? Like what what and what what inspired you to seek, like you know, to go home and to try to contribute and give other people joy in these like new different ways? And then how do you think that like informed the comedy on the way back? Well, I think working at that that summer camp for adolescents was part of this plan to abandon comedy and and become a, a high school teacher, and that was the direction I was going, and and. I didn't see myself doing stand-up comedy and because I couldn't write anything new and I, I wasn't servicing the, the art that I hold sacred. And so I was that was devastating, but I, I also felt that there was a way to redeem everything by, by becoming a, a teacher. And perhaps that would make me less stressed and then when I worked with those kids, I, I realized, oh, 
this could be just as stressful as as stand up comedy, and the, the hours are are extensive, and I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. Then I was I was really really shaken, and I don't. All I can say is that moving out of the city, combined with medicine and exercise and eating right and being around friends and getting up on stage every once in a while and walking my dogs and all those things brought me out of it. Thank God. And then, you know, the first time you decided, all right, I'll go back and do it. It's, it's got to be a weird sort of dichotomous thing to keep in your head, like cognitive dissonance to get back to the, uh, the you know, the social psych, um, where you went to, to the comedy studio and you're such a big celebrity there. Right. It's the, it's the place where people love you most. Yes. Everyone in the audience, you're, you're a special guest star. Right. It's like the most exciting thing in their day and you don't even know if you can do comedy anymore. Right. You go the first time. Right. What's that like being there and having to have those expectations from others and then you know the low expectations from yourself that you're dealing with well the the thing i knew and and that i would often open my set with was that the audience had almost complete control over how i was going to feel about myself the next morning oh, if Jesus. if it didn't go well i was not going to be able to get out of bed the next day but i want to clarify if it didn't go well meaning if they didn't like you yes not about whether it went well from your own perspective <laughs> right. which is right the, how you normally yes. can process it yes it, it was you gave them control over your oh, well-being completely yes was, was it terrifying to you it was it was terrifying but two things happened one the owner of the comedy studio rick jenkins was so nurturing and there was there was no bombing that I could do that would make him rescind his offer of you can go on and close every show and do as much time as we have have left. The other thing was I was reading it might have been the New Yorker or the Atlantic an article about David Foster Wallace's notebooks and he wasn't as problematic as he is as he is now but at the time I was reading this article about his notebooks that I was fascinated by and there was one picture of his notebook in which there was a quote and I could only make out the first two sentences maybe or maybe the first sentence and I googled it and I found it and it was a quote by by Samuel Beckett which said ever tried ever failed no matter try again fail again fail better and that became my mantra which relieved me of all the the audience controlling how I was going to feel about myself tomorrow. I I went on stage every night expecting and and being comfortable with failing and had that idea that well tomorrow I'll I'll fail better. And then you would go back to your childhood bed. Yes. No, I want S. <laughs> oh At my six word. Foot 7. Yes. And pounds. Yes. You would go back and and the childhood bed from which you'd escaped. I mean, you're, yes, it's not as size. though, but it's not as though your childhood home life was uh, for you a return to a, a halcyon days. No, no, right? I mean, yeah, it was a it was a very lonely, dark. I want Sammy. I want to ask, ask you a question because you were there. You were on the. You're like the field reporter <laughs> out in the war. This so is incredible. Yeah. What I mean when you were seeing Gull. What, what did it look like to you? How worried were you for him? Maybe you weren't. Like, 
but you were because you would call home sometimes. No, actually, I mean, I saw someone in Boston who was really working on all this stuff actively. I mean, that was the, that w- you know, I think there were periods of time in New York beforehand where it would have felt more hopeless. I mean, that version of Gull that was going to be a, you know, school teacher that was working in that camp and then, you know, ultimately was getting back up and doing comedy. That was like seeing the beginning of this, this amazing comeback Gull. Um, that was like seeing Jordan right after the last baseball game during the retirement, ready to come back and play basketball again. Um, and I thought <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Poetry. Um, and, uh, just to clarify, his free throws are good. He's not as good a basketball player as, uh, as Mike. <laughs> um, but, but, but no, I mean, what was, what was interesting about that period of time is like people talk about like wellness and all these like gimmicky ways like meditation app wellness but gary like like i'm curious and and also just to clarify i also saw you on the days when you decided to get out of bed like well i was getting out of bed because i made plans with you so i had plans that was part of my my comeback which even if it was not sammy there were people on the road who i had just met in the meet and greet after the show who would ask me if i wanted to get coffee or lunch and i would i my decision was i would say yes to every invitation there i was thinking he wanted to hang with me no i of course i wanted to hang with you but it also <laughs> also i could, i would not say no to to an invitation or an opportunity and and also how do you say no to sitting in on a class at harvard university no but it really was like Eye of the Tiger, except you know, instead of instead of Eye of the Tiger, he was listening to audiobooks. I mean, this was really like a a dedicate, and I think that's part of what's amazing about the special. And I think you should, you know, talk about a little bit. Is it's not like you just started feeling better. Like you really, no. the medicine it was incremental. The, yes, oh, this is crucial. And so, just like, could you get in? Could you get a little granular about? Because that's the kind of thing saying yes to every plan. Like that plus the medicine. Like, what did you do physically, emotionally, to get yourself? back and not just back but better than than you'd been before so many so many things but one of them was getting out of bed to walk my dogs every morning and then i i had just these these anxious mornings of ruminating on where my life was and how fearful i was that i learned to drown out by listening to on point on on NPR and if that if I was too early for on point I would listen to the BBC World News Hour and once those were over I would I would fill those anxious moments with an audible book which at the time I was so convinced I was going to go broke I would only get from the from the library which has a very limited collection of of audio and so I would I would fill my mind with with learning things rather than catastrophizing and and my fears and then i joined a gym for ten dollars a month which was remarkable I, d- I didn't feel i deserved an expensive gym and i was i was convinced i was not going to work again so i needed to hoard my my money so i joined a gym and i would go there every day and do the elliptical and then gradually i worked from 10 minutes to 18 minutes to 24 minutes and then I said, why don't you just go for a, a run? I was in New York City. I said, run when the walk sign is on, and then you can walk 
the other times when you're just traversing and then I realized oh I could I could run this entire time without without stopping and it was about 24 minutes I think that I ran for and I hadn't run in, in years and I was listening to an Oliver Sacks book that I got from the library but it was only like a half hour long it was it was this thing about the elements I don't know if you've ever listened to it anyhow it was it was so moving and and it, it the the exercise was one of the one of the huge components and then I started to eat right and oh my gosh but the 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 exercise and the medication and and probably the effects of the electroconvulsive therapy that I that I had that that springs really worked and really helped so I don't, I don't know if that's the that's not that granular but it it's t a few of the biggest components in in getting through the morning which was always the worst for me well let's let's talk uh, as a way to get to the granular part of it about the financial insecurity yeah because I think that right there's this chemical thing that happens this depression sure. which yes. then put you in a spot where you couldn't do the thing that right. you love to do. You felt you couldn't do the thing that right. you not only love to do that, but that had given you purpose. Yes. And that it made you money. Yes. And also it gives you a hit of dopamine and serotonin and, and whatever else chemicals happen when you make a room full of strangers laugh. It's exhilarating, right? Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no, there's no, uh, no feeling like it really. Yeah. And it seems to me like in your late 40s to suddenly be really aware that you might not have an income source. Right. Is I, it actually is something, it's like, I can't even imagine how scary that must have been. I, can you just talk a little bit about how that would, how you would play around with that in, in, your, in your mind? I mean, how limited that made you feel? Because then you were able to transcend, which is incredible to me. Yeah. It, I, I remember reading Camus, and he had this sentence, which seemed like anybody could have come up with it, but because it was said by by Camus, it, it really seemed more significant. But he said, "If you're ever without money, it builds in you a sensibility," which seems pretty pedestrian sensibility, and doesn't sound very Camusish. But that's that's so true. I grew up; we were we were broke on food stamps and free lunch and welfare, and I would hear my father say things such as, God forbid I die, what are you going to do for money? And I would hear that and at, at seven years old to understand uh. the, the ramifications of alimony on a tax return and how you couldn't deduct that and just be aware of all these things about being poor it it really put a lot of stress on me and i never wanted to ask for anything and and we can't afford it and all these things so my biggest fear always was going broke and losing all my money and and the interesting thing is i was in worse financial shape at, at different periods of my life but not affected by depression in this way and when the two things met i was i was overwhelmed and really fearful and went so far as to see this woman who lived on my corner essentially in new york city and i and i thought well this is 
this is where I'm heading. I can totally understand how she would have wound up here. She's living on your Ill. corner outside. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not the corner apartment. No, 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 no. She yeah. lived outside on the on the corner in the, in the worst of conditions and and sometimes if it rained, she would get under a, a door sill, a doorway and it was just and I and I would I totally identified with that situation because I I wasn't going to be able to take care of myself and I was just I was just so scared by that and it, it was it was hard not to think about that and the idea of thinking about writing jokes when your your livelihood and and your your living indoors depended on writing new jokes because I I didn't want to go out on the road if I didn't have something new. It's really important to say this though. Even during this time if if one would have talked to comedians they would have said, "Oh, the best comedians working i mean gary goldman's in the top five <laughs> no i mean it's important to note that when you would be in a club like sammy said not just in the club in boston like you know when you were in a club like the other comedians watch you the other comedians uh are excited about the fact that you're there everybody knows you're the smartest guy which and i, I wonder <laughs> if that also though added a kind of pressure knowing because you know you here you were, I mean, the Sam's Jordan analogy works because here you were, and there was, I'll say, there was a, a, a gap between where you were professionally, m meaning the, the, the rewards of uh, money and fame versus sure. where everyone thought you were talent-wise, right? right? There wasn't yeah. golf, which bothers you then. Oh yeah, I was criminally underrated. <laughs> <laughs> right now yes. it's funny because some people would have said they'd made it if they'd been on the talk shows you'd been on sure yeah you'd done stand-up on television you'd never had a year where you didn't do stand-up on television right which is the whole goal oh i know of somebody. i know even in the middle of this you did late night right television. yeah i did i did colbert, colbert. and conan during the during this time and, yeah. and you did one of the great conan hits was during this time wasn't it yeah 30 million views yeah Right. So how did yeah. you process that? So I want to understand the way depression talks to somebody. So you go out. Which of the Conans was it? Like, what, what was the story? Which July 2016, the abbreviation. Right. Okay. So you States. did the abbreviation yeah. bit, yeah. which is, you know, I mean, I showed that bit to Kevin Pollack, who didn't know who you were. <laughs> and upon watching that bit, Kevin Pollack said, oh, he's a made man. That's one of the greats. <laughs> and then wanted to get to know you, right? Right. And yes. Kevin's not an easy audience, very hard audience. Right. So you do that, 30 million people watch it, everybody, every comedian tells you you're a fucking genius, but what's your self-talk? Well, if I'm such a genius, why am I such a failure? Like, what's your self-talk then? I mean, that was one of, that was one of the things. It's, I, I think those people had, I didn't, I didn't dis dismiss what they were saying, but one of the things was, yeah, if I'm so good, then then why am I not even selling selling out 300 seat comedy clubs? And then I started to once I got healthy. But at the time, I wasn't selling any any tickets, and it was that that abbreviating the states that started to really move ticket sales in a way that nothing else had. It was so so interesting, but. I also kept telling myself that that was as good as I was ever going to do, and it wasn't it, it wasn't enough. And 
because I couldn't think of anything new. You went through writer's block, but this writer's block was not like any other writer's block where it was a couple weeks I hadn't come up with a joke. This was two and a half years where the only thing I really had produced was five minutes about eating ice cream with a fork. Which was genius, which by the way, I don't want to overuse the word. I mean, you heard the very beginning of that, right, Sam? Yes. Yes, and that joke, in the way many Gary Goldman jokes happen, started pretty small. Sure. Like it was it was two sentences. Fork prints and ice cream. Yes. Life in despair. Evidence of life in chaos. Life in chaos. That yes. was like the beginning of it. And then you were and in then the club. You really, yeah, and you really and you got a picture of and it's this weird thing because Gary's like basically just describing like the darkest like he's talking about the Brita the the, the plates are piled up so high that you can't that, fit the the Brita underneath the <laughs> The faucet. <laughs> yeah, that that your you know your phone is cracked. Yeah. You know that the there, there's no top sheet because it's covering the window. There's this whole thing, and it bit it built like those weren't all right. there. And yeah. then in the special version, some of that stuff's out of it. Right. Um, yeah. And some of it's new and it's fresh. But like that was actually the first moment that it was clear to me that out of the depression was coming this like whole new wave of remarkable Gary Goldman stuff. That's like <laughs> about that was about like the darkest aspects of. Of, of humanity as exemplified in the external manifestations like four prints and ice cream. You called me in, in that night or the next morning and, and you said- 100% true. You said, I, I just gulped back. I was like, what do you mean? You go, well, he he said this thing about, and you told me the routine. He said, you know, the sign of depression, there were four prints. He looked and there were four prints in the ice cream. And, uh, and I remember being like, oh, thank goodness. Like, <laughs> we're rolling again, you know. But then, yeah, man, were you able to recognize, okay, um, because the special starts with this, you're on stage and you're not getting any laughs. Right. I mean, they edited out the, any of the laughs you might have gotten, but basically you're sitting there getting no laughs. Yeah. You're just talking about being depressed without jokes. Right. And yeah. you say, this is the cosmic bottom. Yeah. How soon after the cosmic bottom moment did... Fork prints and ice cream show up. Well, I I had it. I had the line. I just didn't. I didn't connect it to depression explicitly. That was a, that was a big step. Keeping it to myself, the depression and the anxiety was was part of the thing. You can't talk about the things I was talking about almost exclusively at the time, abbreviating the states and sweet potato fries, and then be completely honest about your your mental illness but what was wild was you eventually then started incorporating that in those small this this business is a comedy club above a chinese restaurant you know not even you know this isn't this, like not, not not some like fancy whole thing and you then started opening up about it while you were there yes to a crowd of people who are drunk on scorpion bowls who have not come to like listen to some intellectual you know they're not like watching some like john mulaney comedy set eating like french fries with mayo like these are like <laughs> these are people eating chinese food super drunk wasted and you're like no no no, i'm actually depressed and they kept laughing right. and yeah you, and it was, it's, it's not like it's not like a cry for help type thing you were just like, no, like you have to understand like this is coming from depression when did you when did you decide to start like putting that in the thing well it was so clear that something was off, at least to me, in that I was shaking and I was 
disheveled because I was always just getting myself together for the show last minute and racing in so that I could make it on time and and I just dreaded all the little things in the in the day the shower the shave the the just I never never ironed anything and so it was clear to me and I, th I thought I needed to address it why my voice was strained why it was in a different pitch than I was used to why I was making faces like grimaces all the time and I was in I was in physical pain from the from the anxiety but there there was something else that I had that I haven't really talked about in any of these interviews because it didn't occur to me that that part of the recovery was at some point that summer when I when I started to to do the jokes about depression I thought maybe this is this will be okay to move back I'm not going to live at my mom's but get a, an affordable apartment in an area that I grew up in where I have friends that I grew up with and maybe New York City and trying to be a, a great TV comedian is is just too stressful and I can't handle it and I should I should lower the my expectations a, a little bit and that was for some reason that was very freeing I just I just had to be a good artist and it and it didn't matter where I was getting it out and I and I knew that I would be able to do Conan whenever I wanted basically because of my relationship with the with the show and I th I thought this will be this will be fine and nine months later it was. It was a little bit risky, I think, to move back to to New York at that time because my my and and Sade, my my partner, was concerned that maybe I was rushing back and and that I I should take some more time to recover. But I I took that leap of faith, which you take a hundred leaps of faith in this business. But I took it, and it was the results were dramatic. I met with the director of the special the day after I moved back to New York. We agreed to work on it, and within from May to December so six or seven months I had an offer from HBO to make this as a as a special let's talk about ZipRecruiter let's talk about ZipRecruiter hiring can be a challenge as Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner discovered Gretchen needed to hire a game artist for education tech company she knew it wouldn't be easy to find someone to grow with her team that's why she went to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. Gretchen posted her job on ZipRecruiter and said she was impressed with how quickly she found qualified applicants. She also used ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter her candidates so she could focus on the best ones. And that's how Gretchen found a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it is no wonder four to five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter.com slash M-O-M-E-N-T moment. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What did it mean to you when Joe, I mean, because one of the things when we were, and I, I do want to talk about Amy and, and, and you and the way you put faith in, in friends of yours, which I think is very useful for people to know, even when it seems like they can't tell anybody, that if you do tell people, eventually you'll find people who will help. Yes. Um, and 
I will say I was so wrapped up in the show and I was so happy to know that Amy was in there. Right. Helping you, you yes. know. Um, but one of the things that I remember used to bother you and me for you was that even as everyone knew you were a genius, and I'm not using that word lightly. Um, <laughs> you know I don't believe in that, but... Well... Thank you, you. You know you're wicked smart, though. Wicked smart. Because, I mean, you do. You, you know, you already threw Camus out there. You didn't, you didn't throw Camus out there so I'm no a, one would know you were an intellectual. Well, I'm well I mean, you read. chose to say Camus. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and that uh, you understood but Camus. Le, but let me translate it for people from Boston. You may remember him as Camus. <laughs> yes, for sure. But I will say one thing that did bother you, I think, was that you didn't feel like you were in, with the cool kids. Well. That they, that they didn't uh, acknowledge your thing. Right. Well, it it just confirmed this worst fear of myself that I wasn't as good as the the, the people were saying, and and that I wasn't as good as I I wanted to be, and I need to be. I need to to feel that I'm, yeah, that I'm worthy before I feel comfortable joining a a, a group and. And so yeah. what did it mean to you when Judd Apatow? <laughs> no, because, right, he's yeah. he's the principal of comedy high school. Oh, my gosh. And That's a great analogy. Well, he is, yeah. right? Yeah. And so what did it mean <laughs> What did it mean to you when Judd was like, you should be president of the class. Like, I'm going to take an interest. Like, you're the guy. I mean, can you just talk about how that happened and what? Because I, I have to imagine the only thing I can equate it to for my own career is when Steven Soderbergh said, like, Hey, you and Dave should write Oceans Thirteen, and right. and I will say, I mean, Sammy can attest to it. I I said that day, but I spoke to Sam like an adult even when he was like ten. But I was like, my whole life changed. I was very aware of it just from having lunch with Soderbergh and him saying, "Let's do this," that everything was going to be different because Steven Soderbergh was like, "You're good," right? Like, I recognize it. Right. I'd already had a ten year career, but it right. was like, uh, wow, really? Like yeah. I can, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be, so I can't imagine, look, you headlined all the right places, you'd been on TV bef- a lot, you had an, uh, you know, you and Dane Cook did that whole run, but somehow you felt like at the, the beating heart of the center of what was cool in the world of comedy was ignoring you. Yeah. And suddenly Judd shows up. Can you talk right. about that a bit? Well, there was also, there were two things and they were a year apart. The summer before that, Patton Oswalt wrote this incredible that was amazing yeah this incredible sort of essay on facebook about the abbreviating of the of the states joke and and just it was it was embarrassing the praise was was so great so so that was really nice that somebody i really admired and and had looked up to and is and is universally respected in the in the business wrote that but i wasn't in a in a place to really let it let it sink in and then a year later when i was feeling better when judd came on and and i think i think i i knew how significant that was and the the principle of comedy is is the best analogy for his position but when i called your wife to tell her i called jason herwitz which is a, your lifelong bestie. My lifelong bestie. As you always say, your Levine. My Levine, yes. I always say that. And I didn't want to say it again because I don't want to irritate you. And then I called Amy and she bawled. She burst. When you said Judd Apatow is going to work with me and she started yeah. crying. Yes. I yes. And we were on FaceTime 
And she just, oh my gosh, yeah. And did that help you realize what a thing I was that like, was? Oh my gosh, this is this is huge, and I'm so glad I told people that get it. You guys then called me together. Yes, and I freaked <laughs> out. I was so happy be, yes. uh, that Judd, yeah, was doing it because it's an imprimatur that you can't. He doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. No. And did you then feel like, oh fuck, I got to live up to this? Well, or were you ready? I was. I was ready, but. Also, I knew there was one more hoop to jump through, which was I needed HBO to see what I was working on, and, and that would come another four or five months later. So, so did you go into over... Did, did Were you healthy enough at that time and in yes. the workout routine oh and all gosh. of it that you were like, yes. let's go, let's rock yes. and roll? Yes, I, w I was so healthy and so driven and so focused. And it was... I remember when... when it's funny, we'll mention Jordan again, but... When Jordan made that that second, the first comeback with the Bulls after he retired for for a year and a half, he he said with with regards to his workouts and his performance that he felt like a, a shark who who tasted blood, and that that's how I felt about about those next six months. I I knew that I was in this incredible position, and that I was going to be propelled by by Judd's involvement. And I knew that I was not going to be any healthier, and I wanted to get everything down. And then, and then Mike, the director, said something that Rick Rubin had told him about when you're feeling creative, do not stop, yes. just keep going. And and that was that was another thing. That was like another fail better moment where it's like, oh, I've I've got this, and I'm I'm not letting go. And also, you were aligned and unified for the first yes. time in a very long yes. time. Yes. Because even when you were opening for Louis on that tour and you were living this life, right? you were flying around on his jet, yeah. he, you were, you were um, kind of anointed by him. Right. But somehow you would walk onto the stage and you didn't have the confidence. No, no. For some reason, right? Because yeah. that was like the beginning of stuff starting to crumble, but you couldn't right. talk about it yet. No, Am I no, correct I in that? We never actually no. have discussed that, but I'm, no. I'm now filtering these no. events through this. I I. I mean, I didn't realize I needed it, but I needed some way to transform my my comedy into personal and and deeper. And I I didn't I didn't know how to go about that. And I I may have had the skill technically, but I I didn't have the the topic. I guess you mean you didn't have what it took to dive deep inside then. You no. knew you should and you couldn't do it. Right, yeah. And you would have told people to do it. Even sure. Then, or or yes. said you were doing it. Yes, oh, probably. Because you would mention your brothers. You would, yes. On stage, would, you would mention yeah, this stuff. Yeah, I would open stuff. up these small things that, that really didn't cost me anything. Not that talking about depression cost me anything, but I felt it was costing me something. And then how did you decide, Gare, and then we'll talk about the HBO special more directly but and what it means, but... You know, I remember Aim calling me, or us sitting down and talking, actually, and her saying, I think I have to get Gary to go to electroshock therapy. Yeah. And because that's such a radical thing to do, and I know you've talked about this a bit in other places, but you have, we, have the, we have the benefit of time now and also of kind of being the HBO special coming. So if you can, try to really talk through that process because someone out there is listening and, and maybe electroshock's not what they need to do, but maybe they finally need to leave their marriage or maybe they finally right. need to quit their job or take a job. Like, yes. like, you know, 
they're in a desperate place right. and they feel like they don't know which way to go and they're paralyzed and the right answer feels terrifying. They know what the right answer is somewhere right. in them and it feels terrifying. So can you just do a bit of time on how that decision got made? Sure. And, and why don't you take us all the way up to you showing up to do it? Okay. So the the interesting thing is I've heard from a number of people recently that they knew how bad things were, but they didn't say anything to me. One Pete Pete Holmes said that a lot of us were were discussing how how sick you are and we didn't know whether to to bring it up with you we didn't know what to do and my friend Joe List said that there was one night where I saw you and I thought it would be the last time I saw you and I don't I don't know how I would have taken it at the time but Amy was the one person who gave it to me straight and she said you've got 4 years tops and and that was like oh my gosh has it has it come to that it was almost humorous it was it was so stark and and i thought about that and and i knew some about electroconvulsive therapy ect electroshock therapy whatever you want to call it i knew a little bit about it i had seen a great ted talk of a man who who was an advocate and it had saved his life and i had amy used the expression the gold standard because she had researched it I think for her book and and then yeah for hesitation wounds or not yes yeah. yes yes and then my psychiatrist was an advocate for it and the way he explained it to me was was so was so perfect and but the but the you've got four years left really made it sink in that I needed to do something seriously I needed to do something serious and my doctor had been pleading with me to go into the hospital for years. I'd been conditioned o over the years, and first with one flew of the cuckoo's nest, and then girl interrupted, and then even even a lot of mental illness professionals would say you don't want you don't want to go into the hospital. It's it's bad. And Dr. Friedman at at Cornell. Just he said, "We'll take care of you," and 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 finally I gave in. And was it an emo? Was it? I mean, admitting to yourself, I need to go to the hospital. Not only that, I need to get electrodes. Yeah. Uh, wired up to my head. Yeah. Did it feel like a victory finally going in, or a defeat finally going in? Well, there were a couple of things. I had always, well. I probably watched six episodes of Intervention over the years, and I always used to yell at the people, would you just go in? This is If anybody offered me the opportunity for relief and they were going to pay for it, and all my friends showed up and it wasn't my birthday, I would, I would go in in a, in a second. And it was... Honestly, if you if you know Amy, you know how smart she is, how thoughtful, how informed she is about this subject. She that was the intervention, and and so I was. And it was Sade too. It was Amy yes, and Sade. It was so my wife and yours, the yes, two of them together. Yes, yes, definitely. And Horowitz also was on that side, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, you know, you had a group of people who cared, and you knew yes. they loved you. Yes, and. And that was so helpful. 
because just on my own, I, I would probably still not have gone in, gone in and I wouldn't have gotten the, the help. But and what do you think made you be able to talk to people like Sammy? I know you said you made that determination to go see people, but that was after the electroconvulsive therapy. Right. I mean, you did confide somehow in Amy. You let Sade call Amy when things got really bad. Yeah. I think some people want to just... They isolate or they let the, the bad word that nobody cares, right? Because part of the depression is you think nobody really loves me. Nobody would right. if they knew me. Oh, yes. If they yes. really knew who I was, yes. yes, they wouldn't love me. Yes. So what do you think allowed you to just have that little glint of wanting to survive enough to, 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 to tell people? Well, I think your, your family had built up such a, a an incredible amount of... of trust i had such trust in in your brains and in your and in your love and then sade had had withstood this for so long yes and heroically and, she had yeah. yeah and and my buddy herwitz there's there's nothing he wouldn't do for me he would kill for me yeah it's it's like Ch chucky in in goodwill hunting this guy would lay down in traffic for me so i I had that support system and some people don't even have one person like that. And I had at least three. Yeah. And so that was the, am I answering the question? I mean, you are, I, I guess the only other, the, well, I guess, how did you not give into the isolation? I, oh. that's for other, I'm, I'm interested in that. Not, I'm interested in that for somebody who's listening, really, who feels like they can't bring themselves to tell anybody because they'll be judged or because right. they won't be yes. worthy. Because something in you didn't let yourself die. Right. What made you just go, all right, I'm going to... What finally prompted you to say, I'm going to plainly tell people how bad it is? Well, not so many people, but enough people to get yourself help. There's this redemption... That, that you get and and comedy is a is a is a great source of of revenge for things my my experience at at Trader Joe's became this yes great bit where somebody was very rude to me and this this to me this huge injustice and I got revenge by telling the story on 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 television uh to great acclaim, and I and I won. I may not have won that day, but I I won. And so this this thing that had crippled me and robbed me of years of my life, I learned from an interview I did on something called the Hilarious World of Depression that people were thirsty and hungry for people to admit that they did this and so I was getting emails and feedback saying that this helped somebody and that was how I was going to get my revenge on on depression I, I oh, it was by helping other people by helping other people and by opening up about it and and so even before Judd came on even before HBO came on I, I made it my my prime directive in order to stay sane during this because I knew it was a very likely it was probable that this was not going to make it to a TV special. Sure, because those things just rarely, rarely happen. There's such a such timing required and and interest and and. But I said not just a TV special, an HBO special, an HBO special, sure. And 
I, I will admit that that Mike and I decided from the very moment that the only place this place was this show was really going to work was was HBO. I mean, I'm a Showtime yeah. loyalist completely, right. but I understand for a comedian, yeah, why an HBO special is a a particular legacy that you become a part of, right. Right, and a particular central spot in the culture. Right, I, I didn't what mean happened. to be dismissive of Showtime. I just never worked with Showtime in that in that way. Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm agreeing with you. Okay, I'm, right. I'm I'm right. agreeing. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. look at what happens when Michelle Wolf does an HBO special. Right, right. It it gives you a moment to share yeah. with the people who are going to care in the country the most. Right, it, right. Yes, to share this experience. Right, and who you to share who you are, who yeah. you are, who I um, am. Yes. Gar, uh, how much of a role did shame play in this? Were you, did you feel a sense of shame? Yes. I, we can't hear you nodding. Right. Yeah. Yes. No, I did. Yes, oh yes. my gosh. You were just that nodding. Was, that was bad po- podcasting right there. I was just then nodding. You, yes. You were shame, nodding. Yeah. shame for so long. I was ashamed, not just of my mental illness. I was ashamed that I wasn't, I didn't consider myself a quote unquote real man. Like I was um, sensitive and soft and, and I cry a lot and my feelings get hurt frequently. And I, you hear a, a lot that if, if you are a vegan, you're soft and, and weak. And, and if you are in favor of common sense gun control, you are soft and and weak. So there, there's this toxic masculinity that's that's out there, and I've always wanted the to gain the favor of these quote unquote men's men. And so, but it wasn't until in my in my forties, and I started talking about being well. One was having a blankie that I talked about on This American Life. I was ashamed of that. I never told anybody. I told people that I had been hospitalized and and had ECT before I told people I had a blankie. (laughs) (laughs) Understandably. Yes. Because I I didn't want to be considered less of a a man because of this, this blankie. And then, so there was shame about mental illness and, but I did realize that once I opened up about it, it was it was so well received and and if the feedback had been negative as it was on some nights i might not have have had the courage to pursue it but it was it was so dramatically positive and and so strong in in its effect on audiences and and people i never got standing ovations from even the abbreviating the states jokes i got standing ovations on this tour talking about this thing that i was so so ashamed of well deserved stand up standing ovation so uh sammy i gotta ask you i almost called you what he calls you which is shmuel but uh <laughs> but sammy what did it feel like to you when you would go because you you spent a lot of nights in comedy clubs when when you would go and see the gall and it was all firing. I mean, and he was killing it night after night. I just, what, what did it feel like having lived through this with him in Boston and then seeing what's yeah, going on Yeah, I mean, like, now? extremely emotional. Like, the, the seeing you, I don't know if that's, like, an audition or, like, when you did the whole special oh, yes. in front of HBO. Yes, yes that Oh, was you were out, you went out yes. that night? Yeah, I went with my buddy, uh, Henry Castriel. Um, shout yeah. out. Um, but seeing that whole thing come together, and that wasn't in some giant room. Right. It was 100 people. Every single person was so moved. And also just because 
we're here promoting a comedy special. Also, just like laughed so hard. Like this is also so funny. That's and that's the thing that that's easy to gloss over in this, you know, era where people like to think that if you tell jokes that have this kind of like meaning and purpose, it might not be funny. Like it's hilarious. Like, oh, people were you. fucking Very laughing. Important to say, yeah, laughing the entire time. Right. Um, you know, I know, I know. It is true. Say, we're like hitting the other stuff too hard. Like, right. Gary, tell me what it is like. Yeah, to yeah, be exactly. This like, funny. and I, I, I just like this is like you will have an amazing time watching this comedy special. Yeah. But seeing people laugh and then and then be moved and then cheer. Yeah, I mean, I, I went through all the emotions. Hard for me not to not to be emotional now. But this actually, I think, is tied to the toxic masculinity stuff because not only did you get over that in yourself, whatever insecurities you had about that. Not you know, no one ever gets gets fully over it. I still remember who. Um, you know, may or may not sit with me at the lunch table in whatever year. Um, but my sister will get mad at me for appropriating her her bullied content, um, which is not as 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 accurate with me anyway. Um, but 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 you and your special talk about this stuff about about sure. the sort of like the lambasting of millennials of people who are who are soft of participation trophy comedy. Like just like what about that genre of comedy pissed you off? That that made you decide to tell you know do this basically like defense of millennials defense of being of being soft to put that all in your comedy and make it funny. Well, again, it was it was my dedication to to stand up, which is to, to be original and not sound like the other comedians. And I would go on stage at at great comedy clubs and hear two or three of the five or six comedians on the show denigrate millennials in the in the same way over the same things and and if it had been logical and reasonable i would have i would have had to endure it and and just not talk about it because i don't want to sound like everybody else but it doesn't it doesn't hold up to to any analysis the the complaints about millennials and it was clearly people explicitly doing what i was feeling inside which was was beating myself up for being right. being soft and coddled and but these people were doing it to other people and it wasn't it wasn't necessary i i i have or i had two dogs i lost one i had two dogs one was the alpha and the other one would kiss the other one and groom him and he would defer to him in all opportunities. He was so much more athletic than the alpha. He could jump higher. He could run faster. He he was just his personality was not to try to take the ball from the other one, even though he could get it and he would juke him and things like that to retain the ball. But ultimately, he would lay it at the dog's feet. And I won't say I preferred one of them over the other, but I will say that that Sandy, named after Sandy Koufax. The softer one was so appealing. I just—he was so special, and and well, I. Well, he refused to play on Yom Kippur, which we have to salute <laughs> him for. I mean, that's a very—I mean, listen, a dog he who has, he wouldn't play fetch on Yom that's Kippur. That's what I'm saying. I mean, that's that's heroic if you think about it. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. So I never thought I of that. You would identify more uh, with him. So, uh, Gar, HP, just for our remaining moments. Oh, here. sorry. No, no. What, what are you apologizing for? This is great. Okay. I'm just saying, I just have a couple of things I want to yes. hit, which is HBO special. Yes. Can you fucking believe it? No. It, I mean, it was something I had on my vision board, but I had given up on it years ago because it was for the, it was for the young. In this new sensitive era, am I allowed to make fun of you for having a vision board? 
No, you don't have to feel bad about that. I can still it's say corny, vision yes. board. Yes. Because then now I think you're a Marion Williamson voter all of a sudden. I'm I'm a Elizabeth Warren voter. Okay, fine. Yeah. Oh, practical, practical steps. Yes. And also a vision board. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, which um, HBO specials, which comedy specials meant the most to you as a kid? Do you remember like what... I mean, for me, those young comedian specials were like, right. I would watch over and over and over again. Right. I, I didn't have HBO growing up. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, we I couldn't, knew We couldn't afford it. But yeah, but the still, kids, you could go over to a friend's house. The kids would have me over and I would watch the, the specials. So the Rodney Dangerfield young comedian specials. And also, while I, I never saw the whole thing at the, at the time, kids would come in and do verbatim routines from George Carlin's special i think from carnegie hall yes and i think that's the one with the cereal the rice krispies swearing at him and and that that was probably the most significant one in my in my life couple other questions great sort of working questions yes um well i want to talk about the comedy lessons you give but i want to ask you this so the tag to the water joke um to me, is just vintage. What makes you so special as a comedian? You know, you and the character of your seven-year-old self asking that question right. to the teacher. I won't kill right. the joke here. Yeah. But my question is, did you find that tag writing in a journal or on stage? How does that writing process or process work? Well, I found almost everything on stage, and that particular tag actually came from a friend watching me tell me tell me more about that. yes who was he, it it was the, this man named paul varghese who's a, a dallas comedian and we met on last comic standing oh, and over this. the years whenever i can i have him open for me and he said you need to talk about the the water fountains in the south. <laughs> he watched you do the shtick, yeah, and then he's yeah, like... Yeah, he had all these tags for me. He had watched the whole set, and he had all these tags. And I don't know that I used... I might have used a couple other ones, but I remember him saying that and me thinking, why didn't I think of that? That's so perfect. And the next show that I did, I put it in there. And it killed. And, and it killed because it elevates the whole thing right but also it, it had something that that is so rare in comedy where you you hear i don't know if comedians who have writers feel this but i generally have to be the judge and jury for all my jokes of course and it's difficult because something i find funny other people anyhow this other guy was saying this idea. I found it funny and knew it was funny. So I had such confidence in it that even the nights when the audience doesn't get it, I, I can think to myself, no, I, I'm right about this one. This is funny. This is funny. Yes. Yeah. Well, the audience at the special taping really got that yes. line. And for me, yes. it's just a perfect... I love that someone was able to do that. Did you tell him it was in the special? Well, I... I worked with him once when when I toured it, and I told him how how helpful that was. Oh, that's yeah. so cool! Yeah, you got to have him open for you again. That's yes. uh, awesome. And then Gary, you've done this incredible thing on Twitter, and, and it, it's a great example where I know you did not do this thing to gain followers. No, 
And you had no idea that that I was going to no happen. I had no idea that that would happen, no. I do think after the HBO special, you're going to finally, you're going to pass me again. I don't, gonna th- I don't think so. It's going to be a dark day for me. I don't, I don't think so. Because when we were younger, we were, uh, when we both had like 8,000 we followers, neck, yeah. we were neck and neck, and then <laughs> I overtook you. And yes. then, but I think, I know I feel it coming. They're like a freight train. I don't like know. a freight train. But you've gotten, I know you didn't do it for that reason. No. Can you talk about this? Because what a great thing you've done. And it's it doesn't just apply to comedians. Gary's given hundreds of these Every day, at, at, uh, you give a uh, a piece of advice to people yes. who want to be comedians or, or artists. Say now, no piece of wisdom. Yeah, wisdom. Yeah. What what made you start doing it? Well, one is you, your vines sure. when you used to give tips. That was so nice, and you were much busier than than I ever was. And you would make these vines every day. And the the thing that Hurwitz said about your vines was that what made them so special was that it was clear that you were rooting for the person. Yes. And, and that means so much. You weren't dismissive of their dreams or, or ideas. You were rooting for them. And that was so clear in the, in, yeah. the, in the vines. And the day before, well, December 31st, I was sitting there and I was all hopped up on my first coffee of the day. And I thought to myself, I should... All these months while I was feeling better. The was, Royale, by the way. That's what we call the first coffee of the day. Oh, wow. It's the Royale. The Royale. Right? It, just it has a name and it, it should name. have it, a name. We, I did this on Twitter a while Wow. Back. I was like, what should the name be? And we, it was decided. Oh, that's the Royale. fantastic. Because come on, it changes everything. Changes everything. So you were hopped up on because uh, yes. you had the Royale. And for I will say during my depression, the Royale didn't work. For two well, and a half not, years, it might be strong enough medicine. Yeah, for that. it wasn't strong enough medicine, but it was it was working in force that day, and I had been so grateful that I was feeling better, and I was looking for a way to help the comedians because Kurt Vonnegut put it so well. There's such survivor's guilt in in these in in the arts where you know people are just as strong as you, and they're not getting the love they deserve. And I can't put anybody over. I don't have that kind of clout. So I, I wanted to help them out. And I said to Sade, I said, what do you think people would do if I gave out a tip every day? And she said, quote, I think they will love it. And I said, that's it. And, and I, because, because she, doesn't, she doesn't give false encouragement for, for things. She's so honest with me and it's so important. And, and she's not an easy laugh, but when she laughs, it's, a, it's, it's something that's going to work. Anyhow... I said, every day this year, I'm gonna, and I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be, and I promised, and I've kept the promise 274 days. Keep rocking and rolling. Listen, everybody. Uh, so this podcast is going to be out Tuesday. Thursday night in Manhattan, Gary's movie is screening at the Metrograph. Yes. I am doing the Q&A with yes. Gary and his director, so you can yes. come in here more of this and see the special before it uh, airs on HBO. And then Saturday night, the special airs at 10 o'clock. Yes. On home box office. Yes. You will then be able to watch it on demand. Yes. You will be able to go see Gary Goleman. But you will not, if you want this material, you got to watch the special because Gary right. throws out his material. We used to call this the Louie, but we don't say that anymore. <laughs> Though I think we have to acknowledge it was Louie yes. who propagated it because yes. there were some positives. Yes. Um, along with the horrible, abhorrent, terrible behavior 
abhorrent, aberrant, aberrant, Ab- terrible yeah. uh, uh, behavior for which we can't forgive because he has not correctly apologized and asked for forgiveness. But the whole idea of throwing out the special, all the material is a good idea. Yes. Um, go see Gary Goleman live. Go watch the special. Give him a hug. He'll hug you. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's a great hugger. Sammy, I'm so glad you got to be in Boston with the Gull and witness all this and see. Uh, for, I always loved the fact for both of you that you had each other there. And um, a contributing factor to my recovery was having somebody who I could tell loved me and also kind of looked up to me. <laughs> but I also looked true. up to him. I mean, I admire I admire him greatly. No, yeah, so glad I was there and so glad I'm here now on the. Uh on the precipice of it's going to be a lot harder to play basketball in the street with Gary Goldman. <laughs> oh, it's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we can talk about the fame piece of this later. Um, but you're right. Yeah, Gary, you can't freak out on the court anymore. People will start filming it. You know what I mean? If you start yelling at his friends right. because lefties lie, lefties like, lie and stuff. Work <laughs> like if a, a guy calls a foul on you, I think from now on you just have to put the ball down and be like, your ball, sir. <laughs> yes. And just move on. Oh it's a whole new world. A whole yes. new world. Lefties lie. Lefties lie. All right, everybody. Uh, you can find the gull uh, all over social media. Uh, you can find Sammy on social media, too. And I'm uh, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. And um, you can email me the moment, pk at gmail.com. But don't send me any tags for jokes for Gary. I will not be passing them on. Me neither. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye.